following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we do thank you for, Lord, your body, and we thank you for how you've designed it. Thank you, Lord, for children and the privilege and responsibility you have given us uh, as parents and, and us as a body, Lord, to proclaim your goodness to them, to be examples before them. And I pray, Lord, this week as they go uh, to camp and they hear uh, Pastor Bobby Scott proclaiming your word and as they spend time with the, the staff there and the mature believers that, Lord, you would use it to impact their souls Lord, to draw those who don't know you to yourself and those who do know you to encourage their faith. And Lord, please bless their trip. Uh, give them a safe journey there. And again, use their time away as a, a means to draw them near to you. And um, Father, we pray and thank you for, uh, Lord, your provision. I just ask, Lord, you make it possible that any who desire to go can be able to go. We thank you, too, for your letter to the Ephesians that you had written through our brother Paul, and I pray, God, that now as we see your word spoken through him, that we would be changed by it and that we would be encouraged and challenged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want you just to imagine <clears throat> yourself a quarterback. I know for some this may have been a lifelong dream, but imagine you're a quarterback. You've got all your pads on, you've got your cleats on, your helmet, your mouthpiece. You're prepared to take a hit if necessary. You get the play from the coach, you run onto the field, you line up behind center, yell out the play, and then yell hike. Nothing comes into your hand. There's no football. Or imagine yourself soldier. You have your, your gear on, your food pack, your boots, your helmets, your protective glasses, but no weapon. Imagine yourself as a janitor with no mop, construction work, worker with no nail gun, the mother of an infant with no diaper. You're not prepared for what's about to come. And all these examples, right? You're not prepared for what you're about to face. And that is where we're at in our study on God's armor in Ephesians 6. We've looked at a number of things, but we have not looked at everything necessary for us to be able to stand firm in our battle with Satan. There's two more weapons, two more principles that Paul describes here in Ephesians 6 that we need to understand and apply so that we're fully prepared for spiritual warfare And I would like to, again, read this passage beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6 one more time. So if you could please stand with me as we will look to Paul's instruction on the armor of God. Again, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles, of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I have been an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. You may be seated. Again, these verses focus us on the fact that we need to stand our ground, that we need to be firm in our defense and resistance against Satan and his demonic forces. And verses 14 to 20 really serve as a mirror to verses 11 through 13. For in 11 through 13, we are commanded to put on the full armor so that we may be able to stand firm. And then in verses 14 through 20, we're commanded to stand firm by putting on the armor of God. 
And we must put on the full armor because we're not ready. We're not prepared for spiritual warfare if we don't have every piece. Right? Having just a sword, it's not going to help you if you have nothing to protect your body. Or carrying a shield may give you some protection of your body, but you have nothing to fight with. Well, we need every piece. And so Paul says here to stand firm by first girding your loins with truth. And again, the idea that tighten yourself spiritually with the resolve to be faithful to the commitment you've made to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to put on the breastplate of righteousness, that is to pursue a holy life, a, a life of obedience to Christ. And to stand firm by binding your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which we lo- learned last week is this idea of meditating and remembering how Christ's death has brought you peace with God and with one another. You must also take up the shield of faith, that is to trust in God no matter what, to believe his word over everything else. And fifthly, we saw that the helmet of salvation that we are to take, and that is again to, to meditate, to remember, to know, to reflect on the fact that if you are saved, that salvation is secure, and that you have a future hope in the presence of Christ, free from sin and free from the devil. And then... Paul gives a sixth piece. We looked at the first five last week. And this sixth piece is probably the most well-known of the armor of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. And though we may have the other five pieces firmly attached or in hand, if we do not have this sixth piece, this sword, we're not yet ready to stand. Now, there are two Greek words for sword. There is a word that refers to a long, broad sword and also one that uh, refers to a smaller blade. The Machaira, it was about two inches wide, one to two feet long. And Roman soldiers would carry this small sword, but they also would carry a spear. And it's interesting that Paul used the sword uh, in his discussion of the armor of God rather than the spear. I think he does that because remember back in verse 12 where he said we were wrestling not against flesh and blood. That wrestling is close combat. And that is what a short sword is what would be useful for defensive and offensive purposes in combat, a spear wouldn't help you too much if you're face to face with the enemy. The sword of the spirit, Paul describes here, doesn't mean that the sword is the spirit. Neither is he saying it is a spiritual sword. But the idea here, he says, and he even describes it, the sword of the spirit is what? It's the word of God, right? He explains it directly. Now, there are two uh, synonyms in Greek for the word that usually translated as the word logos, which most of us are familiar with, and rhema. And both of these words uh, have the idea of communication either through a spoken or written form. And there's a lot of people that make a lot of emphasis as to why Paul used rhema over logos. And I think we need to be careful not to make too much of it because those two words actually overlap significantly. Uh, both of them refer to communication. But rhema does have an idea. It's nuanced towards this idea of a specific utterance. And it usually focuses on the, the spoken word. But in the end, it is, he's saying here, everything that God has spoken, everything that he has uttered is what we must consider as the word of God, the sword of the spirit. As Hebrews 1, 2 tells us, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, where is it that we can find God's utterances? Where is the rhema of God located? You're holding it in your hand, either in classic book form, or some of you have these electronic gadgets in one which it's contained. But yes, the Word of God has been contained, has been uh, set down for us and preserved in, in the Scriptures, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is God-breathed. It has expired from God. And so the Bible is called uh, the Word of God. And it is also called the Sword of the Spirit. I think one of the reasons Paul does that is who originally moved men to write this book? Who's the original author behind it? It is the Holy Spirit, right? Second Peter 1, verse 20 says there that know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Not only is the Bible called the sword spirit because the spirit originated and authored it, but also because it is the Holy Spirit who enlightens us to understand it. We need him to to grant us the knowledge, the ability to know what what he has said ultimately. 
1 Corinthians 2.12 says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to have understanding. And finally, it is called the Spirit's sword because not only does he, uh, has He originated it, authored it, not only does He enlighten us of it, but also, too, He enables us to apply it. Uh, we saw this back when we looked at Ephesians 3.16 where Paul was praying for the Ephesians and he prayed that, that God would grant them according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Or we have Galatians 5.16 which says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So we have this idea here that the Bible is, is authored by the Holy Spirit. It is em, empowered and enlightened by the Holy Spirit and is therefore appropriately referred to as the sword of the Spirit. And then Paul says to take up this sword. And when he says that, what does he mean? Is it something where we just, if we're in trouble, we just kind of wield this thing around, show the Satan we have a Bible and he runs off? Is it that we have to open it up and we read some words from it as if they were a, an incantation or some magical formula and when Satan hears God's words, he has to run? Is that the idea behind taking up our sword? Well, let's turn to Matthew 4 where we will learn from the master swordsman himself how to wield the sword of the Spirit. This, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is popularly known as the temptation of Christ. But I think a more appropriate title would be Satan Gets the Smackdown. Tom Barker liked that one. In any case, Matthew 4 comes at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. If you remember, he had just been baptized by the Messiah's forerunner, John the Baptist. And Jesus, it says in Matthew 4.1, was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, it's interesting, that statement, that introductory statement of this passage, where it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. He's being Spirit-led here. He's being led into the wilderness. That is the desert probably just outside of Jerusalem, uh, around the Dead Sea area, which is the lowest elevation on earth, the lowest uh, land elevation on earth. And it says here that Jesus was not acting on his own volition, but that he was walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit had led him to go out into the wilderness. And it's interesting to note also why. For we're given the reason that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, led Christ, the Son of God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the master deceiver. That might sound as a strange statement, but the Spirit intentionally led Christ into the desert to be tested. Again, quoting Martin Luther, who said, The devil is God's devil. That God uses Satan for his own purposes. And here, he was to be used in testing the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 2. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Again, we need to realize these uh, temptations, they weren't the only ones that Jesus faced while he was in the wilderness. Right? Luke 4.2 tells us that Jesus was being tempted by the devil the whole time that he was there. And we can be sure, too, that Satan was tempting him before he came into the wilderness, right? Satan didn't wait for him to go into public ministry. He doesn't wait until you're 30 years old because, before he seeks to, to attack you. He will, at day one, literally, seek to tempt you. And here we are given in Matthew 4 simply really a, a grand finale of this testing in the desert where Satan brings three final attempts to take down the Son of God. 
And first he recognized Jesus' hunger. Again, Jesus, fully man, after 40 days of not eating, his body demanded food. That's a point in time after you don't eat about 30 days, your body begins to feed on itself and you have severe hunger. And that was the case with Jesus. So Satan approaches him and says, um, if, and actually a better translation of this first class conditional sentence in Greek would be since. There's not doubt being presented here. Actually he's saying, since you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Because again, here Satan wasn't trying to make Satan or Satan wasn't trying to make Jesus doubt if he was the son of God. He knew he was. Jesus knew he was. He's known since he was a boy. Satan was trying to get Jesus not to doubt that he was the son of God, but to doubt the father. Because here, essentially, he was saying, since you're you're God's son, right? Since you are, why isn't he taking care of you? The father has led you by the Holy Spirit out here into the wilderness. You're you're hungry, you're tired, and he's doing nothing. And since you are God the Son, why not just take this rock here, change it into bread, satisfy your hunger. Now, the problem here wasn't doing a miracle. The problem wasn't Jesus eating. The problem was Jesus, uh, Satan was trying to get Jesus to distrust God. God had his purposes and his will for Jesus to be in the desert. He had led him there. The Holy Spirit had brought him out into the wilderness to be tested. And Satan was trying to get Jesus now to not trust God. Not trust the Father. Not trust the direction of the Spirit. It's because Satan loves division. And if there's any place he wants to drive discord, it would be within the Trinity. That's why he attacks the church. As believers, we're now in fellowship with him. And so he wants to attack our fellowship with one another. He wants to attack our fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he played to Jesus' human weakness of hunger here to try to do that. And he will do the same to you and me. Satan will strike us when we are tired or hungry or pressured. We don't feel good. That's the time when he will swoop in and try to get us to distrust God. Try to make us wonder, why is God letting me go through this circumstance? Take matters into your own hands. God doesn't care about you. Take care of yourself. See, he doesn't want us to think that God cares. He wants us to think God cannot be trusted. But notice how Jesus responds in verse uh, by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, where he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And it's interesting Jesus chose that passage. Because again, Christ knew the context here, and the evil one knew the context as well. Right before that quote, that came at the end of verse 3, listen to what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 8.2. For it was Moses who spoke these words. You shall remember, he's speaking to the Israelites, all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out the mouth of the Lord. It's interesting he quotes this passage because there are some parallels here. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? Forty years. How long was Christ in the wilderness? Forty days. The Israelites got hungry out there, didn't they? They ran out of food. They complained to God about it. Jesus was hungry. But see, in the case of the Israelites, they didn't trust God, so they rebelled and they complained. Satan's temptation had worked on them. But Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and what God was trying to teach the people of Israel as they were out in the wilderness, that ultimately food isn't what's going to sustain you. Ultimately, don't look to food to depend on for your life. Look to God, who is the one who will sustain you. And Jesus refused to doubt God's love for a second. The people of Israel, though, did not. Christ said in John 4:34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And that's as an example to us to trust God regardless. So Satan tries another approach in verse five. He says that he takes Jesus a few miles up into Jerusalem, takes him to the temple and the pinnacle of the temple, which was probably some 450 feet to the valley below. And there Jesus says, or Satan says, OK, Jesus, you have faith. I'll give you that one. Why don't you put that faith into action? And throw yourself off of the temple onto the ground because God will protect you. Since you are God's son, why don't you show faith in him by doing this? 
And then Satan gives this temptation a real kick when he throws scripture in. He quotes from Psalm 91, which happens to be a psalm that is focused and dedicated on trusting God's care and concern and protection for those who trust God. And some think that this psalm, Psalm 91, was actually a messianic psalm. And so Satan's quoting from it, you, you trust God, so just do this. Imagine the impact that would have as you enter public ministry and, and you're on top of the temple. Everyone can see you there. It's on the highest point in Jerusalem. And you throw yourself off and God catches you. Wouldn't that be amazing? And wouldn't that show God's care for you as his Messiah? You see, Satan knows what the Bible says. And he'll twist it. He's tempting Jesus here to presume on God, to to make God show that he can be trusted and he's faithful. We too presume on God when we say things like, even though I probably shouldn't do this, I I know God will protect me. or, Or, you know, I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me. Or, yeah, I shouldn't spend this money. I don't have it, but but God will take care of me. These are examples of presuming on the Lord. Jesus responds to Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. And then Jesus doesn't quote the rest of the verse, but again, he would know it. Satan would know it. Where it talks about the Israelites, though, tested God in the desert when they complained about water, not having water. And they had said, where's the water? Lord, did you bring us out here from Egypt to kill us? And see, what they were doing there was was baiting God. They were presuming upon him. Don't you care? Are you going to take care of us? Would you bring us out here to, to take us out? They were daring God to prove his care for them. And Satan was trying to get Jesus to do the same. But it was strike two, Satan. So he takes one more shot. He takes him up on a high mountain and he shows Jesus the world. Maybe there was a vision involved in this as well. But he basically offers Jesus that the whole kingdom of the earth, if he will but bow down and worship him. Now, again, Satan doesn't really own the universe, but he has been given some control over it for a time. In the end, he's a thief who has no rightful claim. But he knows Jesus is the Messiah, and he knows what the Bible says about the Messiah, that he would have a kingdom. And so Satan here offers Jesus an easy pass. He says, Jesus, take thee out here. You don't have to do all this stuff. You don't have to keep uh, living here with all these humans, and you you don't have to endure all the things that, that you're having to endure in that weak body of yours. Just worship me now, and you can have the kingdom. You can be done with it. And this, this is the big prize Satan's wanted all along. From the very beginning, to have God the Son bow down before him. He offers the same temptation to you. He wants you to be tempted by wealth and happiness, fame, fun. You can have it all, he says. Just don't follow God's way. Follow mine. Give me your soul. I'll give you the world. To believers, he says, take the easy way out. God's way is too hard. It's too difficult. You're just going to fail anyway, but my way will give you satisfaction. Don't listen to God. Listen to me. Right? It's the same line that he fed Eve. It's the same line he's feeding Jesus. But Jesus replies, you shall worship the Lord your God only. Again, from Deuteronomy six thirteen. So what do we learn from our Savior here? How does he respond to every temptation that is thrown at him? Do you notice the three words that he repeats in response? The first thing Jesus says, it is written. It is written. Every thrust and parry from the evil one, Jesus fended off. How? With his sword. With his sword. Satan, you can say that, but this is what God says. You can tempt my weakness, but I will trust in God. You can want me to presume on God, but I won't test him. You want me to follow you, but I will worship God alone. Now, you think about this. Was Jesus simply throwing verses out here again, like a magical formula? Is this something like, oh, I'm just going to chuck this one out there. This one has food in it. So, you know, I can throw I can throw Satan out by just quoting this verse. Power of Scripture doesn't come from just having a Bible. Power of the Word of God doesn't come from being able to recite from it. But the power of God through His Word comes from relying and depending and obeying it. 
And that's what gave Jesus power in the moment of temptation. It wasn't just that he was quoting from the scripture. He was relying on it and he was submitting himself to it. And that's why Satan couldn't touch him. Effective use of the sword comes by relying on it. And that reliance is seen in the effort that you put in to know it, to understand it, and to use it. I mean, how, how do you think you would do if, uh, if you challenged the Olympic fencing champion to a duel? Even if you had a little experience with a saber, how do you think that would turn out? Likewise, do you think an occasional reading or casual study or just remembering the gist of a passage is enough to duel Satan? Being handed a sword doesn't automatically make you an expert in using it. You have to practice with it. And so you must study the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 You want a grads? Let me hear it. Be diligent to show yourself approved. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Did I get that right, Jane? Okay, thank you. Now, that instruction that he wrote to Timothy, was that just for Timothy? Was he the only one on the planet that was supposed to know, study the Bible diligently? No, of course not. Of course not. I mean, again, what was it that unleashed the Reformation? The scripture was in the hands of the common man now, and that common man was reading it and studying it on his own. You need to memorize the word. We know this verse, Psalm 119.11, Your word I have treasured or hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What if Jesus was having trouble remembering the scriptures? What if uh, he's fumbling around? Uh, um, there's somewhere, somewhere, somewhere I know I... Now, Jesus, with authority and with conviction, quickly delivered the truth and relied on it because he knew the, sword, knew the word. God enlightens us, yes, to understand his word. It is ultimately through the Holy Spirit bringing illumination that we would understand it. But he will not bring it to a lazy soldier. If you're to wield the sword, you must read, you must study, you must diligently memorize, you must meditate on it continually now again i didn't say that you have to memorize the whole thing that you have to understand and be able to parse every verb that's in this book but the issue is the effort the issue is the dependence some of us have better memories we can remember a lot more so memorization may be easier god isn't at the end of the week asking how many verses have you memorized but have you tried are you relying on my word how much have you studied how much have you meditated Jesus had to study. Jesus, these verses just didn't pop to him because he's God the Son. He was a man, human, just as you and I are. And he was made like us in all things, Hebrews 2.17 tells us. And that tells us that he had to rely on being enlightened and empowered by the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit, just as you and I do. Jesus Christ is God, the Son, but He set aside those prerogatives and privileges as God to become man. That doesn't mean He divested Himself of His deity, but what it does mean is that He, in every single way, as the Scripture says, became human. So He had to study the Word, and He worked hard. How about your sword? Is it rusty or is it sharpened? How much do you read the Scripture? How much time do you devote to studying it, to seeking to understand it. Do you have any memory verses that you're working on right now? Do you have a firm grip on your sword? Are you ready to use it as a moment's notice? Jesus was, and he gave us the example as well. If we are diligent in our pursuit and understanding and knowing and meditating, and depending on his word, that is what we will use to defend ourselves against Satan's attacks. And we have so many resources here to help with that. Small groups, there's things on the website, classes. Take advantage of them. They will help equip you to wield your sword. Well, following the sword, Paul then turns to prayer. In Ephesians 6.18, he says, With all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And may notice here, the American Standard translates these two verbs pray and be on the alert as commands, but actually they are participles. Uh, They're not imperatives. They're the idea of praying, being watchful. And this may seem like just some subtle point of grammar. I'm 
And I'm not trying to show off anything there. It's actually something very important. Very important that we need to understand because it tells us how verses 18 to 20 are connected to what Paul has been saying just before. Because again, a participle is, is subordinate to a main verb. That is, it tells us how the main verb is carried out. Or a participle may tell us the result of the main verb. Or it may tell us action that is going on at the same time as the main verb. Here Paul uses these participles to directly connect praying to what he's just been talking about regarding the armor of God. The main verb they're connected to is stand firm. Stand firm by putting on the armor all the while praying is the idea here. It's tightly connected to the armor. Now, Paul doesn't give prayer as a seventh piece of armor. He doesn't say, take the spear of prayer or put on the tunic of prayer. But that doesn't mean that prayer is an inferior part of spiritual warfare. Actually, it's quite the opposite. If you were to count the number of words Paul used here regarding prayer, there's 59 words in Greek. There were 61 words for all the armor of God in verses 14 through 17. So actually, he gives prayer as much, uh, he gives prayer more focus than any piece of any other single piece of armor. Also, too, he repeats this term prayer and praying and entreaty four times in verse 18. And notice every time he uses the word all four different times as well. All prayer at all times with all perseverance for all the saints. There's emphasis here. And also, too, the use of these participles is a present Uh, tense participle means that there's an emphasis on the continuing nature of the action be always be continually praying and being alert no prayer is shown here to be a vital a vital part spiritual warfare paul is saying here again stand firm in the full armor of god or by putting on the full armor of god all the while praying It's like the hymn, Stand Up for Jesus, says there's that line in it. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. That's an excellent exposition of this text. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Saying, take up the shield, praying. Put on the helmet, praying. Put on the breastplate, praying. Take up your, gird your loins while praying. Take the sword, praying. Stand firm in the armor, praying. 18th century poet William Cooper wrote, Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Paul says here in verse 18 that through all prayer petition, he's referring there to every kind of prayer, or, uh, your position, your public prayer, private prayer, whether you're oral, silent, formal, informal, or to different kinds of prayer, confession, adoration, praise, requests, questions, pleading, exaltation. And Paul says, through all the different matter of prayer that we are to be praying at all times. Again, many relegate prayer to uh, times in church or Bible studies or maybe a certain part of the day or before a meal or just on those uh, special circumstances where we really need to be praying. But the New Testament is very clear about this. How often are we to be praying? Always, right? Always. Romans twelve twelve. Be devoted. That is to persist in prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, as we night and day keep praying for you earnestly. 1 Thessalonians 1.12, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Matthew 7.7, keep asking and it will be given to you. Or of course, we know 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it's a favorite memory verse. Only three words, pray without ceasing. If you were to learn Greek, you could memorize it in two words. Literally, it's pray unceasingly. In fact, prayer, Paul brings up prayer three different times in his letter to the Ephesians. Because again, the, prayer is this idea of speaking with God as a, as a life pattern, as a mindset, as a constant awareness of God's existence, of His presence. He is always in the room with you, so to speak. As Psalm 46.1 says that God is always present, a present help in time of trouble. Psalm 145.18, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him in truth. And this omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God invites you to commune with Him. And He invites you to commune with Him all the time. Think about that. It's not like God says, okay, 2021, I'll give you 30 seconds at 6.15 p.m. Put that on your calendar, please. I'll give you a little time. It's not it at all. 
He says, come anytime. And he's saying, come all the time. Commune with me all the time. I can handle it. I'm not too busy. Yes, there are billions of souls. There are uh, a countless number of atoms in the universe that I'm sustaining at every moment. But I want to talk with you. Isn't that amazing? And we can have that presence in the throne room of God because of His Son. Because of His Son. Because of His Son's sacrifice for us. That invitation to commune with Him at all times is only offered to those who have a relationship with God through Christ's sacrifice for them on the cross. It is only an invitation for those who have turned from their sin, confessed their sins, asked forgiveness for them, and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, as Brother Kemp has talked about earlier this morning. And then, because of Christ, Ephesians 3.12 says, In Christ we have confident access through faith in Him. Or Ephesians 2.18 says, Through Christ... We have our access in one spirit to the Father. Believer has a key that opens the throne, the door to the throne room, and the key is in the shape of a cross. And He gives that key to any who would seek Christ's forgiveness and genuinely turn to Him in faith. And notice also Ephesians two eighteen. It said, "Through Christ we have access in one spirit." It's the same idea as in Ephesians six eighteen that we are to be praying at all times in the Spirit. And this isn't talking about a a mystical prayer or some uh, prayer language that you're supposed to be speaking or looking for some feeling or or something like that at all. But to pray in the Spirit is one, to recognize that it's the Holy Spirit who brings you before the throne. Jesus opens the door and the Holy Spirit is the one who escorts you in. Praying the Spirit is to understand that He intercedes in your prayer. Just as Romans 8.26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here it says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. And we also know Christ is our intercessor, right? See, the idea here is that Jesus intercedes for us from where our prayers are received, And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us from where our prayers are originated. And to not pray is to cut off two members of the Trinity and their powerful coming alongside of you in order that the Father would hear your prayers and respond according to His will. For Christ knows the will of God. The Holy Spirit knows the will of God. And so we need to pray and to ask that the Spirit would intercede for us as He promises to do. To pray in the Spirit is also to pray genuinely. Not with some legalistic or ritualistic formula or parroting some words over and over. Words that you don't mean. It's to express an earnest dependence on the Spirit. It's, it's also akin to praying in Jesus' name. To praying according to the will of God. To pray according to the truth of Scripture. Praying in the Spirit is in concert with knowing the sword of the Spirit. George Mueller, who was a Incredible prayer warrior discovered this. He discovered the connection between the word and prayer as he said this. Before this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, to first give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing was to first give myself to the reading of God's word and to meditation on it. That thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus by means of the word of God, while meditating on it, my heart might be brought into communion with the Lord. This great man of prayer who had experienced and practiced was a tremendous example of a prayer warrior, understood, and it took him 10 years to get there to realize, I I need to be communing through the Word, that it is the Word and the Holy Spirit through His Word which will prompt me, and as I meditate on it, that will usher me in to praying in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit means to first be listening to the Spirit through His Word. William Hendrickson said, The Word of God directed to men is very powerful indeed, especially when it is in close connection with the Word of men directed to God. And Paul then directs our prayer. The next part of verse 18, he says, Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We can't miss the point being made here. Because here we see, again, another aspect of corporate, of the corporate aspect of spiritual warfare. 
You aren't just to be praying at all times in the spirit for yourself. Paul says, you're also to at all times being watchful of your fellow soldiers and lifting them up in prayer. Don't just be concerned about the dangers you face, but also be concerned about the dangers those around you face. Are they not also under attack? Do those around you not also have weaknesses and struggles? Do those around you not also have trials and temptations and difficulties? Brothers and sisters, are you watching out for that? Are you constantly being aware and on the alert? That's the idea of the word here. Being on the alert, looking around carefully for those who are struggling. Are you praying earnestly for them? Colossians 4.12 describes Epaphras' example where it says that he was earnestly praying for them, laboring earnestly for them in his prayers. How much do you pray for others? How aware are you of their circumstances? How proactive are you to reach out to someone who is struggling? Paul was a great example in this. In many passages, he talks about this. Romans 1.9, For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. Do you avoid getting involved because you don't have time or you don't know what to do? On the other side of that, how often are you letting others in on your struggles? If you were a soldier lying wounded, would you stay silent as you lay dying on the ground because you're too embarrassed about getting you get the fact that you got injured? Or, or would you not cry for help because you didn't want to be a burden? Again, no, you, you would cry out for help because you don't want to die. You don't want to lay there and bleed to death. So you would say, help me. There'd be desperation in that. And believer, you're not going to get through this war on your own. Here's yet another point in the letter to the Ephesians. Here's another point in talking about putting on the full armor of God where we have to recognize we are one army and one unit together. This isn't solo soldier time. And if you would see progress in your growth in Christ, you must open up to one another and you must be on the alert for one another. I had such an encouraging... uh, Example of this a few weeks ago, somebody had come up and told me how they were really struggling with something, and another person that was next to them, they were, I think, in here and, and obviously just really struggling. And the person next to them turned to them and said, Are you okay? And then asked, can, Is there anything I can do? How can I pray for you? And prayed there. I was so encouraged. That is being alert for the folks that are around you. And that is doing what Paul said to do with all petition, all perseverance. Pray for those around you. Be looking for their struggles and their concerns and where they're tempted and where they're going astray. And you pray for them. Get involved in each other's lives to be able to do that. You know, I've noticed that we've talked about prayer more than once in our journey through Ephesians here. And prayer has been mentioned more than once uh, during several times uh, just with announcements and things like that. And, and you know, I notice and Ruth notices when uh, you do that, that the prayer sheet seems to have a few more requests for a while, but then it, it kind of settles back down into the 40 or 50 requests that are given each week. And, then, and as I look around at this room, I see more than 50 people. And I'm, I'm guessing that there are more than 50 of you that are struggling? Are there only 50 in here that need prayer? Are there only 50 in here that are struggling with temptation? Are there only 50 or 60 of you in here that are being tempted, that are under attack, that are going through a trial? How many people in your life know about that? Again, you don't, it doesn't mean you have to put on the prayer sheet to be godly or spiritual, but let the body know you're suffering. Some of you are, I'm, I'm so encouraged by your transparency on your prayer requests. We need to more of people doing that. We need to be knowing what's going on because we're supposed to be watchful. How are we going to win this war if we're getting defeated over on this line and nobody knows about it? We must be transparent. You know, Paul is an amazing example of this in the very next verse where he asks for prayer for himself. And what he asks for is prayer to be bold, prayer for boldness of all things. Now think about that. This is an apostle, the apostle Paul, the same guy who suffered a beating, suffered torture, suffered rejection, suffered persecution. In one case, he was thrown out of a city after he had been stoned and left for dead. And then he gets up and walks right back into that city. This amazing example of boldness and courage. And yet he's confessing, I still struggle with fearing man. Pray for me to be bold. What an example of humility. 
But brothers and sisters, we need to join the battle together. We need to follow in Paul's example. Open up with one another. Be on the alert for one another. This is how we must engage the enemy. Again, remember the context here. The context is spiritual warfare. Verses 19 through 20 show us the example of that. Praying for one another. And remember, those prayers are not just for health or safety or or work, or those things. Those are important. We should pray for them. We should pray for our daily bread. But we need to remember, as John Piper has said, the power of prayer was not given to the church to win comforts, but to wield a weapon. And again, in the context here of the armor of God, we need to be praying for one another to be faithful to our commitment to follow Christ. Praying for one another to put on the shield of faith, to trust in God, praying for one another to gird our loins with that faithfulness and that truth and praying for one another to be meditating on the gospel, to understand it, to know it, and to be encouraged by it. Praying for one another to take up the sword. Paul here again prays and asks for a prayer in verses 19 through 20 for himself. He's very transparent about that. And notice twice, in fact, he says, pray for me for boldness. And what is the boldness that he was wanting prayer for? Why was he asking for that? Well, again, remember his circumstance. He notes it again here. He's sitting there in chains, right? He's imprisoned. Probably been imprisoned for at least three years to this point. And as he was imprisoned, he's unable to go on missionary journeys. He's unable to visit churches. He's unable to have any freedom. And yet he doesn't ask for prayer for freedom, He doesn't ask for prayer for the sores that have developed because of the shackles that he's been wearing for these many years. What was foremost on his mind was to proclaim the wonderful truth of the Savior, the wonderful truth that a Messiah has come to deliver us from our sins if we would turn and place our faith in Him, whether Jew or Gentile. Anyone who would come in faith could have eternal life. And Paul here, he recognized he had an opportunity. When he was in Caesarea for two years... Just before, now he's in Rome. Before he was in Caesarea, he had the opportunity to speak before the governors, Felix and Festus, and before King Agrippa. He had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them. And now he is in Rome, awaiting for his appeal to Caesar. And he will be facing a Roman tribunal. And perhaps he may even go before Nero himself. And he says, pray for me that I would be bold. I have a wonderful opportunity here to proclaim the gospel, perhaps to the emperor and his court, and the Senate. I want to be bold. I want God to give me the words to speak, and I want to speak them. He said in Philippians 1-2, he talked about the fact that being chained to these soldiers, he'd been sharing the gospel with them. And in fact, to the point, it says that the, his imprisonment in the cause of Christ had become, well, had become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. So Paul says, I want to keep this going. And here's a call in his example to us to pray for the advancement of the gospel and to pray especially for those who are called and gifted to do so. Are you, are you praying for those on the prayer sheet who uh, are needing salvation? There are folks in our body who have written the friends and family, relatives there that have asked for prayer for that salvation. Are you praying for that? And are you praying for those who put that name on the list that they would be bold to proclaim and speak the gospel to that person that they are concerned for? Are you praying for our evangelism team? It goes out every Friday night. Still Friday nights, right, Sharon? Saturdays again? Flip back. Shows how much I know. I am praying, though. Wrong night. I'm praying ahead of time. (laughs) But pray for them, that God would give them boldness, that God would give them the words to speak, and that God would raise up more to go out with them. Are you praying for me? Paul wasn't afraid to ask for that. I I need you to pray for me that I would be bold. I struggle with fearing man. This is a a unique thing God has done in my life to have me up here speaking publicly. This is not my personality. I'm honest with you. I was the kid in the back, the nerdy junior high guy, ended up becoming an engineer of all things. I need you to pray for me for boldness and for courage, for understanding to know what to say. There are many people who teach here Frequently, every week, Sunday school teachers, adult Sunday school class teachers, pray for them for the same thing. How about our missionaries? We support them financially, and that is wonderful. Let's support them regularly in prayer as well. Praying for boldness and courage for them. And especially those around the world who, like Paul, are imprisoned. 
Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. We are connected to them and we have many brothers and sisters who are in prison right now. Let us pray for them, not just for their release, not just for their protection, but pray especially for boldness for them and courage to be a testimony and witness for Christ even in the midst of that. Voice of the Martyrs, uh, you can go to their website, persecution.com, a wonderful resource. They share many requests of those around the world, brothers and sisters in prison and how you can pray for them. And I thought in closing, it would be appropriate to share one such brother that we would end in praying for him. May 21st, Pastor Robert Asarian was arrested by a large group of Islamic security agents in Tehran. Uh, they first had invaded his home, confiscated many of his belongings, and then they raided the church. They took Pastor Asarian to an unknown location. Uh, those in his congregation don't know where he is, and they're gravely concerned about him. Why don't we spend a moment and pray for him specifically? Lord, we do ask for your hand to be on Pastor Robert. Lord, give him courage. Give him boldness. Give him strength. We do ask, Lord, that you would release and deliver him. We know that you can do that. We do ask, Lord, for you to watch over his health. But more than anything, God, may you use him in this circumstance to honor the name of your son and Lord, to proclaim his goodness, his salvation. Pray for his family, Lord, for those in his church, that God, you would encourage them and that you would use this as a, a way to advance your kingdom and or to show your faithfulness. Lord, we pray for many other brothers and sisters in this world. And Lord, I ask on our behalf, God, that you would please move us to be or more entrenched in prayer, more earnest in prayer, that we would be constantly praying for one another, for ourselves, for those, Lord, who are um, in prison, Lord, those missionaries around the world, and God, that we would pray for Jesus to be exalted through them. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouragement to take up the word and to be praying as we do. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.